1: This week on The Timeline It's been a quarter of the season And we rate how they've done With Tim Tompkins and Kellen Olsen We are about one-fourth of the way through the season, and we're bringing you our very first quarterly report. Uh, We got a few guests on. Sam Cooper, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing very well, Mike. Excited for our first quarterly report with a couple guys who have been doing this for a much longer time than we have, so... Uh, should be fun to pick their brain.
1: Yeah, we got a lot to get to. So also joining us for this roundtable, two Suns podcasting legends. Um, First, the host of the Empire of the Suns podcast and a writer for ArizonaSports.com, Kellen Olson. Kellen, how are you doing?
3: What's up, man? Don't give me that kind of title. I hate pressure like that. People (laughs) who don't know me are like, oh man, this guy's sick. I've never heard of him before. And then they're going to hear me and just be like, oh God.
1: It's too late. You're a legend now. And the next uh, guest here, a guest who I've actually was telling Tim, uh, he's been on basically all of the last 10 episodes of our podcast, but never an official guest, uh, the host of the Solar Panel, a Phoenix Suns podcast, Tim Tompkins. How are you doing?
4: Uh, You know, I'm fantastic, um, Mike and Sam, and I just got to say how much I appreciate being on a podcast that I don't have
1: to edit. (laughs) (laughs) I was on a roundtable podcast for the Sun Solar Panel, and I remember just... It was a big one. There was, I think there was five people on that podcast. And I remember the whole time thinking, wow, Tim is doing a really good job right now. Because <laughs> it takes a lot of work to wrangle a bunch of guests. Uh, so hopefully I can live up to that. So actually, before we get started, Kellen, you're probably the person that we've had on the podcast that has had the most time around the actual Sun's players. You and maybe Gerald, I would say. Uh, On our very first episode, Sam and I were talking about Dragon Bender, and we were sort of saying, I wonder what kind of music Dragon Bender listens to. What does a Dragon Bender Spotify playlist look like? And I was wondering if you had any insight to what kind of music Dragon Bender likes.
3: No, I I don't. But it's funny being around him and just being around the players in general. You never get a sense for a player's personality when you watch them on the floor. You just assume with the way Dragon Bender plays and how passive he is, he's just a super quiet guy but I mean he's not overly boisterous by any means but he's very like he goofs around a lot he just is very outgoing from what I've seen around the players and then like just walking by him in hallways and stuff he's never one to like just duck his head and stuff he just says hey how you doing good to see you things like that so I I haven't had a chance to be in there when his Spotify playlist is bumping but I just know that (laughs) he would defy people's expectations in terms of the type of guy he is especially when you hear his interviews as well um, he's not the greatest at that and really saying how he feels in that regard. So I think he would just, yeah, be different than people expect.
1: He's got that tall guy personality, I guess. <laughs> there's a lot of confidence that comes with being a massive, uh, I would imagine. So, all right. The idea around this podcast is a quarterly report idea. So what we're going to do is we're going to take stock in where the Suns are at right now compared to how we felt about them before the season. So there's been a few games, as we know, 22 games, the Suns are four and 18, we had twice as many wins at this time last season, 8-14, and 14, not a great record either. Um, the margin of victory, I think it's funny that Basketball Reference calls it a margin victory, so a net rating, essentially, we're at a negative 10.14. Last season, at the end of the season, a negative 9.37. So actually, a worse margin of victory uh, so far this season, so a worse net rating than The entirety of last season with what is potentially a better roster so we're gonna talk about six different topics and then how we felt about them uh, before the season compared to how we feel now so the first topic is the roster so this is sort of a judgment on our front office which has been a little rocky uh, at this point obviously no point guard I did want to read before we get into it I wanted to read a list of point guards the Suns have been tied to in the last few months Terry Rozier, John Wall, Spencer Dinwiddie, Tyus Jones, Milos Teodosic, Patrick Beverly, Kemba Walker, George Hill, Goran Dragic, Tyrone Wallace, Damian Lillard, Markel Fultz, DeLon Wright, D'Angelo Russell, Corey Joseph, TJ McConnell, Jeff Teague, and Frank Nilakina. Did I miss any of their guys?
2: (laughs) I honestly tuned it out Uh, about halfway through. (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah I think you got them all
3: Um, you can count Shea Gildas Alexander I guess because reportedly uh, from Gambo from our side that they were looking at him and they really wanted him in that draft but they got Mikel instead so there's another one I guess
1: yeah I guess the godfather Gambo he's holding on to that report I've seen it a couple times they're coming across so um, let's start actually Kellen let's start with you how do you feel about the roster um, so far now compared to how you felt about it at the beginning of the season
3: um, I was operating under the assumption that a point guard was going to come just because it seemed like a horrible idea not to. And it just defied any sort of really logic to come into this season without an established point guard. I thought a trade was coming. I remember the one thing I always remember is Sham Sharania had a video uh, come out regarding Patrick Beverly. And this was about two to three weeks before training camp started. And I remember that he ended the video basically saying the Suns will sort out this point guard situation by the end of training camp. And the, that was really the expectation <laughs> amongst that h- super high level of uh, insider. And even even on down to, to guys like us, we were obviously expecting them to add a point guard at some point, And they didn't. And I know that's what we've been talking about this whole time with this team. But that's really what it comes down to, that they didn't come into one. This season. So I I would say that the front office has been the biggest failure of this team as a whole, just because they're putting not only their team in a deep hole, but putting Devin Booker in the deep hole as well by forcing him to play point guard right now. And I've been on the more negative side of point book, just in that you can tell his scoring rhythm and things like that. His floor sense kind of gets takes a hit when he's playing these point book minutes, but he's really good at them, and it just speaks to how great he is at basketball. But you can tell that he's not fully himself out there. That's also the injuries as well. But that's because they don't have another ball handler, and that was the clear weakness of this team. And I'll give them credit for getting Jamal Crawford because it would have been a whole lot worse without him. But with that being said at the same time, I think that the front office, if we're going to go through everything on this team, which I believe we are, they would be the biggest negative for me so far through the first 22 games because during the season as well, I think it's been really clear that they need a point guard. I know other teams are probably holding them out on a high price. I think they need to pay that high price at some point because it's just going to get more ugly if they
4: don't. Tim, how do you feel? I mean, not to completely echo Kellen's thoughts, but uh, it's it's hard to – overstate how disappointed i think everybody is at the suns and acquire point guard i mean it, you know just a comparison of football is like going in without a quarterback it doesn't even make sense and then you're talking about all these young players that the suns need to develop one of which being the number one overall pick in deandre ayton and one of the best ways to develop and to teach good habits to a young big uh, is to really have a competent point guard and uh, to your guys points earlier it looked like Brian McDonough was targeting one in the draft. Um, it, that didn't happen. Uh, but it's 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 really difficult to understand how the Suns front office thought that it would be okay to go into a situation like this. Uh, the, the entire season with Isaiah Kanin, Uh you know, they figured out about twenty games, in that, that just doesn't work. And you might as well play the young guys. Uh, but I mean, it's 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 been disappointing just because there's been such a clear need
2: that hasn't been addressed. Yeah, what what I think is funny, I agree with both of these guys. And I think Suns fans are starting to come to terms with the fact that maybe this team won't reach the 30 to 35 win expectation that we had going into the season. And and you can see that reflect itself in the point guard conversation where the types of point guard targets we're talking about right now are different substantially from the types that we were talking about a month ago. At the beginning of the season, Mike, it seemed like, uh, and, and on the rest of the podcast as well, we were throwing out options like, Patrick Beverly or Spencer Dinwiddie or Corey Joseph, guys who would come in and be a stopgap option for one year and just uh, help implement Igor's system and win a few games. Now you start to see names uh, being thrown around like Frank Nilakina and Markel Fultz. Um, Kellen, in particular, I have to give you a shout out because you had a great article uh, on Markel Fultz a few days ago for Arizona Sports. Um, so I would suggest anyone listening to go check that out still that details some of his pros and cons. But But if you make this sort of move for One of these reclamation projects, you're essentially admitting to yourself now that you're punting on this being a successful season, that this is going to be another tanking season for Phoenix, whether you like it or not, uh, even with some players on this roster that have made strides, even with DeAndre Ayton coming in and um, being a consistent 15 and 10 guy, um, but that you're still a long way off from from really rising up the ranks in the Western Conference.
1: So the actual roster, Booker, Ayton, Jackson, Ariza, Warren, Bridges, Okobo, Anderson, Holmes, Bender... Crawford, Melton, and Daniels. There's also a few other assets. The Bucks pick is, is kind of a meme at this point, the way people talk about that Bucks pick. Of course, we have our draft pick uh, next year. Um, Kellen, you did write an article about Markel Fultz, a very good article. What would be your potential trade offer for a guy like Markel Fultz, and for that matter, maybe even Frank Nelikimich, to try to uh, maybe solve that point guard problem?
3: Uh, thanks to you both Mike and Sam for the kind words on the piece. Uh, I imagine both of them being relatively cheap, and I wrote the Markel Foltz thing in mind as him having a really cheap price because that's what it feels like it is right now. I feel like you could get him for the Bucks pick. I feel like you could get him for Trevor Rees and Fillins. I feel like you could get him for something around – that price, and I, I think there's a the Bucks pick meme. I, I like that you call it a meme because it really is. At this point, it feels like if anyone's talking about fake trades, the Buck Bucks pick is in there, and I can't tell if they're <laughs> kidding or not when they always do it. Uh, but I feel like that's kind of the the bar, right, of how high people are willing to go for a minimal type of trade, it, a protected first round pick in that in that light, especially with how great the Bucks look under Mike Budenholzer. I think our our hope that That would, the Bucks situation would turn sour at some point. I think the only way it really does now is, is Giannis uh, has a really terrible injury because the coaching staff under Jason Kidd, like it it felt possible that they could be like a 500 team still. But now that they have someone who knows what they're doing, it isn't the case anymore. And with that in mind, it's just sort of this asset in the middle where it's, it's not too much and not too little at the same point because it's going to be a first round pick. So I think it's in a decent range where you can offer that for either Fultz or Nilekina, and I think that's the right range to go in. We'll talk about Josh Jackson in a bit, but I think he's a very interesting guy in sort of that range of asset as well. But I think it's it's pretty clear that guys like T.J. Warren and obviously like Booker, Bridges, and Aiden should just be off uh, the market completely. But even some, someone like T.J. Warren or anyone else on the roster or any other... Asset really is in that next tier they shouldn't look into for for someone like that at least for someone like Markel Fultz or someone like Mila Kino who's been a disappointment to this
1: point. Tim, how do you feel about Markel Fultz? Do you think he would make the Suns better, and do you think it's worth giving up assets to to take that risk?
4: Well, it depends on the asset, and and one thing too that I don't think quite gets enough discussion is the fact that Markel Fultz, because he was that number one overall pick. Uh, He's going to garner $10 million worth of cap space next year. And hopefully the year after that as well, as long as it works out. So there's a bit of opportunity cost loss, not to mention the class of uh, free agent point guards that will be available uh, this coming off season, whether or not the Suns think that they want to acquire one of those or that they could acquire one of those. One name that sticks out to me is Ricky Rubio. Uh, But as far as Markel Fultz, I mean, we're talking about a guy who has hardly played the season uh, who Different teammates have expressed uh, concern for his overall well-being. That we aren't sure whether or not it's a mental issue, or whether or not it's actually a shoulder injury. Um, and frankly, I'm not sure that the Suns organization is <laughs> is a, a, a solid enough atmosphere where you really want to take on a, a reclamation project like that. Um, they haven't exactly been known for their consistency over the last few seasons that uh, you know, I'm not sure it'll work out, but it really depends on on the price tag. And you guys mentioned it before, if we're talking about the Bucks pick and Trevor Ariza, is that worth it? Probably. Um, and Josh Jackson straight up for Markel Folds, if, if they would do that. I'm not even sure that the money works out there, but that might be something to consider. But uh, it's an interesting one just because he's such a head case and the Suns don't necessarily need any more problems.
1: On our last podcast, Sam and I made the case... For John Wall, now generally, Sam and I have sort of been against a a John Wall trade, but part of the case that we made was based around the idea that it's going to be very difficult for the Suns to get a star, and John Wall is a potential all-star player that might be the cheapest an all-star player has ever been as far as giving up assets for and would be under contract for multiple years. Now, we all know the difficulties with John Wall. It's the contract. That's the main problem with John Wall. He would have to uh, take basically 40% of our cap space for the next five years, (laughs) or four years, I should say. Um, Kellen, I know you've written a little bit about John Wall. I know you've probably talked ad nauseum about John Wall. But with how terrible this point guard situation has been, have you wavered in that take at all? Or how do you feel about John Wall at this point of the season?
3: I actually haven't really talked about him that much, believe it or not, because it's a conversation that goes very simply, and I just say, "Uh, no, thank you, and it kind of ends there. (laughs) But with that being said, I do understand the logic behind it because some of the things I've been saying on podcasts and writing in posts the past couple of weeks is that the Suns need a, a fix now. They need to patch this now. They have to show a real sense of urgency acquiring a point guard in the next couple of months, in my opinion, and if there is a real opportunity to get one, before the trade deadline, they need to perhaps even overpay to do so. And John Wall kind of fits that criteria because my problem with him is that if he was like, if we were 40% less sure that he was a locker room cancer, I think I would be okay <laughs> with him coming in. But there's a chance that he comes in and this just doesn't even go well anyway. It turns into another Washington situation around him. And that's been the vibe around the team the past couple of years and teams that he has led. That his leadership has been an issue. So for me, I think that's the main problem. But at the same time, you are getting an all star caliber point guard for at least the next two to three years, I would assume. And that's really all you need until hopefully Booker, Aiden, Bridges, and whatever other young pieces you have bump themselves up a couple levels due to getting older. And by then, you can kind of, I guess, take the L for his contract and hope those guys can carry you, but you're capping your ceiling. But at the same time, I do see the case for it because of the position the Suns are in, which kind of speaks to a whole is how bad it is for the Suns right now. Yeah, that's.
1: I think the fact that I've been sort of talking myself into it is, is actually scarier than, than anything else to me. Uh, Tim, how do you feel about John Wall?
4: Well, I mean, he's a guy who has a career 19 PER, 21 points a game. Uh, a little over nine assists as as far as a career goes. I'll just ask you guys, how else are the Suns going to get a better player at that position than by trading for someone like John Wall?
1: Yeah, that's exactly where we're at. It's if, if it's sort of the conversation that we've had is if not now, when, when, when is it going to happen? And, the problem with a lot of the players that have come up in the past that the Suns could have potentially traded for is a short contract and the fear that they would not re-sign with the Suns. So we we went over this with Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, and Kyrie Irving. These are the three main stars that have sort of been on the market now that the Suns have been star hunting. And the problem with all three of those were well, what if we sign them and then they leave? We gave up actual assets for them and then they leave. Well, that's not as big of a problem with John Wall. Uh, and, and the real fact is if we sign any star in free agency, they're going to be at that max level contract as well. So at a certain point, you have to weigh those options against each other and sort of make the decision. Now, to me, the conversation comes down to how good you think John Wall is and how good you think he will be going forward. And as Kellen put it, if John Wall is your best player three years from now, you're that's a problem that's a huge problem but if your best players are Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and John Wall is sort of that third piece that can get them the ball that's not as big of a problem and that's when it comes down to his mindset and how good he thinks he is and that might be the biggest issue that we're looking at so the Suns didn't just remake their roster with nine new players <laughs> this offseason season. They also hired an entirely new coaching staff, getting rid of the sort of uh, interim coaches uh, of the previous few years and replacing them with uh, Igor Kukashkov and his coaching staff. There's been a lot of talk in Suns fandom, Suns Twitter, Suns Reddit, Facebook. Wherever you go, there are some very strong opinions on Igor Kukashkov and what he's been doing with this team so far. Just a little bit of stats on where we're at. We're 29th in points per game. Uh, 28th in offensive efficiency, Uh, 22nd in pace, and that's actually the one that bothers me the most. Last season, we were actually 7th in fast-break points, but this season, we're down to 20th. Um, And I know pace sort of sped up around the league, all around the Suns, so it's hard to stay high up in that stat as everyone gets faster and faster and faster. But it seems like we have a nice roster that could play well with some speed. Um, We're also last in defensive efficiency. Uh, Last season, 28th. Um, same with offensive efficiency this season and last season. So as you can see, not great, but a lot of people think the roster was drastically improved from last season to this season, so they sort of point at the lack of improvement at the coaching staff. So Sam, let's start with you. How do you feel about Igor kakashkov As we know, this, the schedule so far to start the season was very difficult. So how do you feel about Igor Kakashkov right now compared to how you felt at the beginning of the season.
2: Well, it's it's very hard to look at these results, Mike, and, and be happy with them. That being said, Igor hasn't completely had a fair shake. I remember we were having a conversation early on in the season where uh, the Suns at that time seemed to be getting a lot of assists. Their assist numbers were up. Um, a higher percentage of their field goals were assisted, and we use that as a positive sign. Uh, if you look at it at this point, their assist turnover ratio as a team has gone up from basically a putrid 1.36 last year to 1.45 this year it's maybe marginally better but not too much of a difference again all that being said it comes down to the point guard and when you talk about pace I think that's really a stat that's indicative of you need to have competent point guards uh pushing the pace in in order to find guys in their spots Jamal Crawford's not going to do it Devin Booker doesn't have a lot of experience doing it um Elliot Cobo and D'Anthony Melton clearly are, are very inexperienced point guards so they're not going to do it either the the one thing that I maybe would give credit to Igor for, though, is that Suns fans uh, bitch quite a lot about rotations, and uh, so far, Igor has been very receptive to all of those ideas. I mean, as fans, we wanted Mikael Bridges starting, we have Mikael Bridges starting, we wanted TJ Warren in the starting lineup, we got that, we wanted less of Isaiah Gannon at a certain point, and we got that as well. So I think he is, has been um, fairly adaptive in, in making changes to the rotations, It just hasn't been met with a lot of success because this bench is so bad
1: so a lot of the criticisms have sort of come with maybe those changes didn't come fast enough so tim do you agree with that do you think that igor should have made a lot of these roster or, or rotation changes sooner or do you think that he's done a good job sort of adjusting to how these players have been playing so far
4: well i guess if you would have asked me a couple of weeks ago i probably would have said that no he wasn't doing a very good job but you know that being said we're 20 games into the season to sam's point uh, all of the numbers showed at least the advanced statistics showed that uh mikhail bridges was better in the starting or the starting lineup was better with mikhail bridges it was better with tj warren in there uh, to a certain extent and uh, igor made those changes and then again to sam's point we talked about how uh, we want to see less Isaiah Canaan, and we are now seeing less Isaiah Kanan. So it's it's you know it, if someone gives you a, a pile of dog shit and then asks you <laughs> to make it into something that smells or tastes delicious, there's only so much you can do, right? So it, uh, it, it's not that I'm disappointed by by Igor. I think that he did take a little bit too long to move on from from certain players. Got out to ryan anderson uh during those times i understand why he wanted to play his vets i understand that he wants to have two ball handlers on the floor and it made the most sense to have a point guard even if that was isaiah Kanan. uh he's been really bad at subbing out offensive and defensive lineups at end of game situations Uh, you know one example would be the end of that celtics game uh when he left devin booker and isaiah Kanan on the floor and course the Suns or the uh, Marcus Morris had that three to overtime eventually winning the game um, but one stat that I do think is is really telling and where I've been most critical of Igor because I actually like the offense a lot especially given what they've been able to do is is the defense how it always seems like uh, the players are confused about when they're switching when they're not switching and of course part of that is on the players themselves. You can't just give them the pass and then hate on the, the coaching staff. But it seems like that changes game to game, whether or not they're going to be a, a, a defense that switches or they're not going to be. Uh, they clearly don't want to switch the number five uh, position. If it's uh, DeAndre Ayton, they don't seem to mind nearly as much. If it's Rashawn Holmes, but the defensive rating this season for the Suns is 113.9. Can anyone else on this podcast name the last season during Suns franchise history that the defensive rating was as bad or worse
2: than 113.9? I'm going to guess the 80s sometime, the Walter Davis Suns. I'm
1: going to guess 11-12. Kellen? I have no guess. I'm a coward. None. None. It is the worst defensive Suns <laughs> <of Yeah.
4: laughs> franchise history. Trick question. Exactly. Trick question. I right, told you. <laughs> That being said, though, the Suns have played the uh, toughest strength of schedule so far in the NBA, so I do feel like that's going to go back to the mean a little bit, but that does speak to how bad the defense has been.
1: Yeah, I yeah, defense has been really bad. And sometimes I wonder, do we need to simplify the defensive scheme a little bit to, to help sort of the young guys get used to it? But that doesn't work in the NBA. So, Kellen, I know you're quick to point out some terrible rotation <laughs> on Twitter, at least some terrible um, lineups that have been out on the floor. So I know you've got some, some takes on Igor. How do you feel about him so far?
3: I feel like he's been fine. Uh, it's really... The thing I always think about is when Ben Macklemore really sucked in Sacramento and then he went to Memphis and we were like, oh, he's out of Sacramento. Maybe he doesn't suck. And it turned out he sucked. And then he went (laughs) back to Sacramento. And that's not to say that Igor sucks and he's Ben Macklemore, but it's really hard to get a read on guys when they're in such a terrible situation in, in terms of how good they are at whatever they do. And the bottom line is he came into a season with no point guard, and it has severely affected the way he does his job. And a lot of people in my mentions and in mentions across Sun's Twitter cannot get that through their head and cannot get past that point because it can't be that simple. He has to be an idiot for some people. And look, he (laughs) he had Isaiah Kanan as his starting point guard, and he had to start a guy who's (laughs) on the end of the bench or a borderline NBA player as his point guard. And not only that, play him – 30 minutes this was not a start him and then switch the line around later no he still had to have him out there like 30 minutes a night on some nights because he needed him and needed his experience out there because that's the position the front office put him in and it sounds like I'm defending him and all that and it's because I am and I think that he would have had you can see uh everything Tim said was spot on about just the little things here and there And I think he's still getting better as a head coach. And I think his progress as an NBA head coach is being a bit, it's taking a hit from having to deal with this roster and grow through everything and make sure DeAndre Ayton is still staying aggressive and making sure Josh Jackson doesn't jump into the third row every five seconds and (laughs) all these different things that he has to keep an eye on with a young team he also has to manage a terribly flawed roster that he's starting to finally figure out in the past week or two how to make the best. And wouldn't you know what the team is improving based off that. So I think he's been fine. And I think uh, everything that Sam said as well was right with that he has made the changes when they've been there. Maybe it's been a little bit slower than some people would have liked, but he couldn't give up on Ryan Anderson right away. He had to be absolutely sure Mm -hmm. that Ryan Anderson wasn't his guy until he wasn't and the same thing with Isaiah Kanan he just had to keep going because the end result was playing someone out of position like TJ and look TJ's playing awesome and he deserves those minutes but at the same time there are certain numbers like the Suns defense and the Suns rebounding that are taking a hit because of it and it's not like Ryan Anderson was going to help them there but you're playing a small forward at power forward and that's what's going to happen when you do that even in the way today's NBA is and Losing Isaiah Canaan, you're going to have a night. Some nights when the second unit plays well, and some units, there's going to be less stability without Isaiah Canaan. I know people can't believe that someone would say that out loud uh, with the way that he played, <laughs> but the bottom line is he has the most NBA experience. He has over five years of it, and then you're moving to a rookie second round pick who just started playing point guard three or four years ago. So, it just speaks as a whole to the roster that he has around him but i think he's been fine. you know
2: i bet igor has uh hurt <laughs> himself compared to a lot of people over the years 18 years as an assistant coach kellen but i don't think ben Mclemore is one of them that's that's probably a first for that analogy
3: <laughs> we should we should just call it the ben Mclemore rule i think i'm just going to start using that from now on and, and it, i don't like really comparing the Suns to the kings but yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> the first player I thought of was Marquise Chris because <laughs> a lot of people were like, oh, Marquise Chris, he's going to be so good in that Houston system. Turns out he sucks. He's not very good. <laughs> saying that.
4: Fans, I don't think anyone in the, on the Sun side.
1: No, nobody on the Sun side. I think it was more of the Nate Duncans of the world, I think, that was sort of saying that, <laughs> <I> actually, <laughs> that it could
3: work. I actually think we need the opposite rule too where it's the P.J. Tucker rule where a guy is good on these teams that no one watches and then once they finally go to a team that's relevant, everyone's like, I really like P.J. Tucker, you know? He's a (laughs) fun little player. We knew. We always knew. We always knew. When he was shutting down like Carmelo Anthony one night and Anthony Davis the next, we were like, yes, he is going to be very important for a good team eventually.
1: Yeah. I think it was really obvious. He was really important for this team. I I loved watching P.J. Tucker. He made it watchable, I think. A lot of games that shouldn't have been watchable were watchable because of him. Uh, So one thing about Igor I will say, uh, being a first-time head coach is part of the reason I think people are so quick to come down on him, because there's no history of him uh, being a head coach that they can fall back on and say, okay, it's gonna take time. Because he's he's a first-time guy, people are putting a lot of pressure on him at this point. These are just fans, of course. We all expect the team to be better. Everyone has rose-colored glasses before the season when it comes to fans. Um, this roster was clearly lacking, and I don't think even a guy like Greg Popovich or Steve Kerr could have come in and got many more wins, maybe a few more wins out of this team up to this point, but not a lot. I don't think it would have made that big of a difference. One interesting stat before we move on. Last season we were 10th in points in the paint, and this season, we're 20th. You'd think with a guy like DeAndre Ayton, that would have gone up. Surprisingly, it hasn't really. I think part of that has to do with fast break uh, points going down as well. Next topic is Devin Booker. So Devin Booker He's in his 4th season. He's 22 years old. He's he's a man now. I don't think we can say he's a child. He he started this season as a 21-year-old. Um so uh, the first real season he started as someone legally able to drink alcohol. Um it's been a really interesting season for Devin Booker so far. He's starting to get uh, the injury prone tag uh because he's missed a few games. He's played point guard. Uh, a few times this season. He's averaging 24 points, a pretty good amount, less technically than last season's, uh, 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 high in assists, seven assists so far. His shooting has been dramatically affected by the uh, hamstring injury at least that's sort of what we can attribute it to so that's been sort of up and down so far this season Tim let's start with you Tim how do you feel about Devin Booker's season so far
4: I mean to your point it's hard it's not just the quad injury Uh, those seem to linger now we're talking about a toe but early on to begin the season uh, he was dealing with um, an injury on his a finger on his uh, shooting hand. So, uh, you know, he missed training camp. Then he was put into a position where uh, he basically had to run point for a team. And uh, that has lowered his efficiency along with the fact that he's been a little bit slower. His shooting is off because of a um, missing training camp, but as well as that that finger injury. He hasn't made the leap forward that he did in past seasons. But I do think that it's it's difficult to really judge a player when they've basically been injured the entire season and playing through it the the very best they can. Uh, you know, one thing I can say about Booker is I think that he has taken the the point guard role and he's really excelled in it. I mean, we're talking about a player with a 35% usage rate, which puts him in the 97 percentile among shooting guards. So. Um, you know the, they're obviously running their offense for him. One thing I do find interesting, and this is something we talked about in the Sun Solar Panel a couple weeks ago, is late game situations uh, when you're talking about clutch time. So games that are within five points with three minutes remaining on the clock, that Devin Booker has an 84% usage rate, um, wow. taking around 80% shots, and and that's got to change. And part of that is on Devin Booker, and I think. His lack of trust when it comes to his teammates. And that is something I would like to see improved uh, when it comes to late game situations from him.
1: That is an insane usage rate. Uh, Pretty crazy. Kellen, uh, I've noticed that Devin Booker seems to be taking the leadership role a lot more seriously this season. I know you've had a few conversations with him. You see it up close uh, on the court. How do you feel about Devin Booker so far as a leader?
3: I feel like he's been really good, uh, as as good as he can be in these situations. Uh, God, after I can't remember which loss it was. Maybe, maybe the Boston loss. Uh, Might have been the Brooklyn one. Which one were they boot off the floor? Was that Brooklyn? Brooklyn.
2: That was Brooklyn. That was Brooklyn.
3: I think it was Brooklyn. He was he was visibly upset and just he usually um, after wins or after losses that are pretty bad. Ever, everyone's kind of the same even when they talk, but he was like visibly affected by it and was pissed off, it seemed like. And it seems like he is trying uh, his hardest to be that leader because he has to. And I feel like he, he is a natural leader in the sense that he does lead by example with, with his offense, maybe not so much his defense some nights, although I think he has had some pretty great performances on defense this year compared to a couple of other years. But but with that being said, he definitely leads by example. And I feel like we've seen it with DeAndre a lot. He's been make, made sure to call it the rookie when he's messed up in certain spots and he has to be the leader of the team now. But I think he's he's done as well there as he as he could given the situation. It's it's kind of similar to Igor, you know, in that regard, I just don't know what you can expect from him with what's around him and what he's being asked to do.
1: So there's a couple different kinds of leadership styles. Uh, So we've been very lucky to see Steve Nash for a long time. Steve Nash is more of the sort of encouraging, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the amount of high fives that Steve Nash gave out in his career. They tracked him, and and it was the most, as they say in the NBA. He's constantly encouraging guys trying to keep their uh, energy up. What we've seen a lot of so far from Devin Booker is when DeAndre Ayton makes a mistake on the floor... He's quick to call him out, and what happens with a lot of those clips, I've been a victim of this myself, people take them and put them on Twitter or put them on Reddit, and they point out Devin Booker yelling at a rookie on the floor. So, Kellen, you're up close to this. I just want to know how you feel about that. Do you think that's the right kind of leadership style to take? It's kind of the the Kobe Bryant school of leadership, if you will, calling guys out in front of everyone, and, and, and maybe Phil Jackson a little bit, too, and, and then hoping that that sort of public attention to those mistakes will help them to reduce those mistakes in the future. Do you think that's the right leadership style to take with a guy like DeAndre Ayton?
3: It's an adjustment that they made, I think because the the Brooklyn game was when they started um, the comments after shootarounds and practices were kind of like, we're going to like start holding each other accountable and we're going to have to change the way we communicate and just start, figuring out the best ways to communicate with each other, but also, and that takes into your question with DeAndre, who's best at what sort of criticism and in terms of what they take. Is this the right approach to those guys? And they talked about figuring that out. And ever since then, it's been, it's been a lot of yelling at him, or not a lot, but just there's been like five or six instances where we've seen uh, Booker or someone else uh, make sure to tell DeAndre when he messed up. And that seems to be what works because I don't think they would be doing it if they didn't think that was what was best. Now, when Josh loses his mind over TJ not getting open for an inbounds pass, slams the ball down and yells at him, that <laughs> seems like more of just a straight outburst uh, right. than anything. But when when Devin does it to DeAndre, it's just it's just more of a in the moment like you got to realize how trash that was like it's one of those types of things where we're not going to let this go another day to the film session tomorrow when we're going to go over it and you're going to realize how big of a mistake you just made it's one of those things where he wants it in the moment and for him to know right away and he looks bewildered and perplexed a lot and that's just because deandre has those moments where he leaves us bewildered and perplexed mostly on the defensive end so (laughs) i i don't i don't uh Disapprove, I guess, is the right way to say it, and and I and I trust them to be to know how to communicate with each other because of something they specifically talked about a couple of weeks ago and seem to have adjusted to.
1: That's good. I'm glad you had that insight because sometimes I I worry a little. DeAndre Ayton, he he's got a sort of an emotional face. <laughs> he kind of always looks. He's wearing his emotions on his face. So sometimes I worry about that kind of leadership style. No, Sam. Something I want you to talk about is Devin Booker's made a bit more of a defensive effort the last few games. And I think that goes hand in hand with the sort of stepping up into that leadership role. If you're going to hold guys accountable on the defensive end... You kind of have to be there as well, at least making an effort. No, Nobody expects him to turn into a uh, Defensive Player of the Year candidate, but just seeing the effort I think matters when you're holding other people accountable. Now, something I want you to talk about is, do you buy it? Do you think it's possible for Devin Booker to make that effort on a consistent basis for the rest of the season um, going forward?
2: Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's absolutely possible that he ex- eventually accepts sort of the James Harden role that uh, is going on in Houston now. I was maybe a little bit skeptical of it when he initially started playing point guard just because, again, going back to Tim's point, the 84% usage rating in uh, clutch situations is just insane to me and sort of speaks to how much of an offensive load he's carrying right now. Um, but ultimately, if this team wants to take a step forward, Devin Booker has to realize that he's not without his own faults. And his defense at times this season has been absolutely horrendous. And um, obviously, you know, Eddie Johnson is a guy who would always point out that uh, a guards defense can look a lot worse if the big man isn't in there protecting the paint so part of that goes to DeAndre Ayton's lack of help defense at times this season as well but um, over the past few games I do think Devin has made more of an effort I really hope that's here to stay because they're not going to start to get better uh, without that effort
1: yeah I hope that's the case I hope it's the case I've actually noticed something interesting uh, in the last uh, few games where they're hiding Devin Booker on whoever's in the corner And as they run actions, the offensive team runs actions in the corner. Whoever ends up in that corner, just Devin Booker stays on him. It's almost like they're running sort of a zone defense with just Devin Booker where he only guards the guy in the corner, which I thought was really funny. It's just you have to hide a guy like him. And and it takes a lot for somebody like uh, DeAndre Ayton to recognize him. Don't forget to call or text our hot take hotline. 530-433-4368 Leave us messages like this one. Starvings to sell this team, and we need to get someone that actually legitimately cares about winning. This guy is a joke. He can suck my ass. And we're never going to be good with him as an owner. He has ruined our reputation in the league, and he continues to ruin our reputation in the league because he wants to be buddies with people that are professional athletes and thinks that they care about him but really he's just a fat piece of shit white dude with
2: too much money and too much boredom in his life we need a real owner and a real owner that's going to give a shit about the team
1: this guy going to talk about the rookies. Now, this team added quite a bit of rookies, but sort of two of note, and then Elia Kobo's taking a little more of a role at this point. So, I think that DeAndre Ayton has basically been as advertised, but Tim, let's start with you. Do you do you feel any differently about DeAndre Ayton right now than you did before the season?
4: Oh, that is a, that's a hard one to answer. I, I think that, you know, and this is something that you guys kind of alluded to earlier in the podcast when you were talking about DeAndre Ayton's pick and roll coverage and you have to wonder how much of that is because of the guard that is also in the pick and roll along with DeAndre Ayton but to DeAndre Ayton's defense is he has the second worst block attempt rate for any center in the NBA he's only leading Ennis Cantor in that category uh, opponents are shooting 67% within 5 feet of the basket when Ayton is guarding it so it's not good. Um and we did, but we didn't expect his defense to be good. So but his okay, so his defense is a little bit worse than I thought it was. His offense is a little bit better than I thought it was gonna be, and his passing is definitely better than I thought it was gonna be. So it, it's sort of a, a mixed bag. I mean, I, I think overall he probably gets criticized a bit too much. Something we talked about on the solar panel. You had this section of Suns fans and analysts and everybody else who perhaps thought that the Suns should have gone after uh, Luka Doncic and so I think that he's getting an unfair criticism because of that lingering debate on what the Suns should have done He's he's been good but there's definitely areas of uh, improvement
1: so Tim talked about a section of Suns fandom or Suns analysts that uh, wanted the Suns to pick Luka Doncic Kellen were you you were one of those guys right? What me? No <laughs> How do you feel about Aiden so far?
3: Uh, He's been as expected for me. I actually was was curious, and I went back and read the thing that I wrote before the draft that got me flamed on the internet more than I've ever been flamed before uh, with saying Aiden's not number one for me, and here's why. And the three main things that I highlighted in the piece were his physicality, his offensive creation, and his defense, and those are the three main weaknesses I would give him right now, uh, watching him. Offensive creation, it's clear that he cannot face up and take a dribble or two. Uh, He either can't or he won't. I don't know which one it is, but it's one of those. Uh, As far as his physicality, I think Suns fans, After it was interesting after three to four games to watch uh, Twitter and watch the responses and people who may not have seen him over the course of like a dozen games or more, and and just picked up on his tendencies because they were just confused by him not showing complete aggression and complete mm. just looking to He's annihilate soft. and dominate people.
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. Uh, and the the groans from the crowd even at some home games with his mm. lack of lack of aggression to shoot the ball at times. Um, that that was something that kind of came up here and there. Uh, At Arizona and watching that tendency come up in his physicality, especially he's just more of a finesse guy. He just likes to lay it in more than he likes to just dunk on a guy and do the Sean Kemp thing where he knocks him over and then points at him as he runs up the floor. That's not really his game. At this point, at least he can definitely mature and become a different player in two to three years. And then his defense, obviously, um, I don't think I really need to say much on that. Um, He looks like a rookie in that regard, but he also looks like a really bad rookie in that regard. I think his defense has been not very good at all, even even for a rookie big. Uh, but with that being said, and, and to Tim's point, I don't disagree that hey, if you put him in a different situation, would he have looked better on a playoff team? Right now, defensively, he, he probably would. Mm-hmm. Um, he would look like a he would look like a weakness for sure on that team. But with that being said, I think he would look uh, not a little bit better, but flat out just better. And I think we have to take that into consideration as well. Um, to take it back to the other end, I think he has been exactly what we expected in terms of production. In fact, a bit better at uh, 17 and 10 and three is no joke at all. Uh, and is very legitimate. And I think the passing is the one thing to me where uh, in the first couple of games, it was just dribble handoff, dribble handoff. And then we started to actually see him open up a bit and make great passes here and there. And I was like, Oh yeah, this is a guy that's going to average like at least three assists a game for his career. He's, He's legit in that regard, so that was my really long-winded way of saying he's he's been what we've been uh, expecting, and I think what uh, guys like uh, Max and David over at the 7 Seconds or Less podcast have agreed with me in saying is that he, he's just a raw, he was a raw center and he got hyped up by some people on a radio station perhaps, that he was going to be <laughs> the next coming and the next Patrick Ewing and Kim Lajuan, whatever it was, and the bottom line was Yes, <laughs> the bottom line was that he was going to be a, a lot more raw than people expected, and was just going to take time in some little areas. And when I say raw, people are like, "He's averaging seventeen and ten. What do you mean?" Well, it's just those three areas I hit on, and there's just some parts of his game that are going to have to mature. And I think we we've seen that. And, and the great thing about DeAndre Ayton is he's been a pretty good for a rookie. He's been pretty great. And the best part by far is that the Suns are a pretty good team when he is on the floor and that's really all that matters above criticism of positives and negatives the thing that matters the most is the Suns are a above average team when he is on the court um, the net ratings and, and that have dipped lately but they're good when he plays and that's all that really matters because the defense or the offense would kind of dip off a lot more with what I said about the negatives if, if that was a little less true.
1: Yeah, I think I agree on that. One conversation Sam and I had is he's and, and I think Dave King was on that uh, podcast. He's the type of guy who can have a twenty four and twelve game, and you you come away from it saying that wasn't a very good game, and that's pretty good for a rookie. I, I you know as far as as far as we're concerned, you know we've suffered with Josh Jackson and Dragon Bender as our top picks in the in the past. So with a guy like DeAndre, Ayton, those criticisms, they feel kind of good. Um, Sam, let's let's switch over to you here. I know we've sort of talked about DeAndre Ayton probably enough. I, I think you feel the same as me. But what about Bridges, AkoBo? I know you guys have some hot George King takes. <laughs> I'm sure you're desperate to get to. <laughs> but uh, how do you feel about the rest of the guys, Sam? Uh,
2: well, obviously, I love Mikael Bridges. I think it would be interesting maybe to talk a little bit uh, um, a little bit about Mikhail Bridges versus Shea Gilgis alexander um, because Kel and I was right there with you. That was the guy that I was really hoping we could somehow get uh, going into the draft but I knew he wouldn't be there anymore with the 16th pick so I think these rumors are kind of interesting um, especially given that Mikael is he's slumping a little bit right now I'm still very happy with that acquisition. Um, the the one other thing I just want to touch on though is uh, DeAnthony Melton is still a guy that I'm really high on for his defensive potential uh, clocking in with like a 6'9 wingspan not a guy who can create for himself on offense but I would just like to see if we're at least going to exercise the thought in our minds of acquiring a guy like Frank Nilakina to pair next to Booker as a defensive pairing for the future, um, I think it would be unwise to do something like that without first experimenting with D'Anthony Melton in some of those same lineups because, of course, I recognize that he's a 46th overall pick and, and Nilakina was a top 10 pick, but I do think there might be something there. There's potentially a diamond in the rough there um, that has gone, to this point, unexplored for the Suns. Um, but yeah, certainly... Just overall, I guess Mikhail Bridges has been good. Cobo, I think, has been good. And, and Melton has just been completely unexplored.
1: Yeah, in, in my mind, Bridges has actually been better than expected on defense and maybe a little bit worse on offense. And especially, it's an interesting time, interesting moment in the season to talk about Mikhail Bridges because his shooting has fallen off a little bit. Uh, we had uh, the guy that runs the Suns film Twitter account on our podcast and his big criticism of Mikhail Bridges is his inability to create... Uh, but not specifically to create in, in, in the way like a guy like Booker does, but more like uh, sort of pump faking and dribbling in, in that single-dribble pull-up or that two-dribble pull-up mid-range game shot. He says guys like that are more likely to succeed in the NBA, and that's his main criticism of Bridges. Um, Tim, how have you felt about Mikhail Bridges so far? Well, just to
4: piggyback off your guys' conversations a bit, Mikhail Bridges hasn't made an unassisted three all season, uh, which is mind-blowing that being said uh and to your guys' point yes his, his shooting is is dipping and if you look at overall his advanced stats when it comes to uh shooting and offensive rating and everything they aren't very good but one thing we do know is that virtually every single lineup is better with mikhail bridges on the floor and that counts for something right
1: yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's it's Sometimes it's hard to quantify what a guy like Bridges does because, uh, de- I mean, deflections matter, but also just sort of discouraging a guy from shooting or attacking just because a guy like Bridges is on you. It's it's hard to quantify that kind of thing. Uh, Kellen, how have you felt about Bridges so far?
3: He's been good. Uh, he's been as good as he can be because I think one of the most frustrating things and why I'm very much looking forward to the Suns being better so I don't have to write about it for an extra four months uh, is the draft is... Extremely unpredictable once players get selected where they are. But also, I mean, there's just like Ben Simmons didn't give a crap about defense at LCU and now he's going to be an all defense guy a couple of years. And it's, that, that part sucks too. But Jaron Jackson can get drafted to Memphis and he's playing next to Marcus and his point guard's Mike Conley. And it's like, can you dream of a better situation for him? And it's clearly working out for him and he's, he's clearly like improved and all that kind of stuff. But putting a glue guy like Mikael Bridges on a four and eight team. You're going to expect a lot of highs and a lot of lows, in my opinion. The net rating for him was great uh, in the first 10, 15 games of the season. And that's where we really saw the case for his minutes to go up. But in the last five games, he's at a minus 7.7 net rating, which is about fifth or sixth on the team. So it's still up there, but not at the top where he's been pretty much all season. And he's just got to make shots because right now he is a limited player. Uh, Tim's point on the assisted threes he's he's not a guy that creates offense right now he's a guy that hits catch and shoot threes and plays really good defense for you but if he can't hit shots uh Igor Kokoshkov is going to do what he did last night which is just call in Troy Daniels who can hit shots uh, because he needs at least something on the offensive end and right now Mikkel can take a dribble and make the right play in a certain circumstance here and there but doing it consistently is a whole nother thing and hitting shots consistently is a whole nother thing right now the strangest trend for him right now is that he's God-awful from the corners and awesome above the break shooting threes right now. I don't understand what that is. I've been meaning to ask him about it the past couple of days. I just haven't had the chance to. So I'm curious to see what he says about that. But I think the main thing to watch with him the next 10, 15 games is him keeping his confidence up. Because we saw it in the... Oh, you guys are learning how bad my brain is. (laughs) whatever game he had, like, 12 points in the fourth quarter and he hit all of his threes, he had that one three on the left wing. See, I can remember where he was, but I can't remember what game it was. He was on the the left wing. He had two defenders coming at him. He just shot over the closeout. And it was like, that is a professional shooter man right there when he made that. And that's the type of shot that he is going to have to keep taking, shooting over closeout, shooting over defenders in front of him and not hesitating. And I hope we see that from him going forward. And I think we will. I think he's, he's a smart enough kid to realize that.
1: Yeah, I know the game you're talking about, and I think that shot took us from down 9 to down 6 with like 12 seconds left, so yeah. uh, unfortunate that it's that situation that he's getting those kinds of shots and making those kinds of shots, but that's comes with being on a bad team. So, Kellen, I want to ask you this before we move on, just because you're the last person who talked to you. If you had to take it back, would you rather have Shea Gilgis-Alexander than Mikhail Bridges at this point?
3: Oh, I'll be quick. Uh, it, it sucks because Gilgis-Alexander is on the Clippers right now, and they have... 14 good players so it's hard to see how much that helps him but at the same point Shea is playing with these sorts of traits and playing with the confidence as a point guard and his defense and everything where he's just one of those guys you see after a game or two like Luca or Jaron Jackson or even DeAndre where you're like oh that kid's that kid's gonna be really good and if there was a redraft right now I think he would move up a couple of slots And I think especially with the point guard situation with what it is right now, yes, you'd be taking the young guy and it would take more time, but I would take Shea right now.
1: Yeah, I've I've been thinking about that after after watching that Clippers game and he just killed us. You know, the the conversation about it usually is it's hard to get wings. It's difficult to get wings, especially guys who can play defense and shoot. So if you can get those guys, get those guys. The other part of that conversation has always been there's so many guards. There's a ton of point guards. It's easy to get a point guard. But we've seen that that's not the case. It seems to be pretty difficult no, to get, you can get a point, a point
4: guard. guard. I mean, we've had Mike James. We've had Isaiah Kanan. You can get a <laughs> point guard.
1: Yeah, I mean, a point guard, I guess, is true. I, but that's that's how you end up with guys like Isaiah Kanan. And uh, now he's gone, too. So, But speaking of wings, we got a guy in his second season picked number four in Josh Jackson. Sam, I'm going to start with you. How do you feel about Josh Jackson so far? This is going to be interesting. I...
2: <clears throat> I'm kicking myself a little bit because I feel like I fell for the empty calorie scoring that Josh Jackson did in the back half of last season. And that's not to say that I don't think he still has potential. That's not to say that that I wouldn't like to make things work between the Suns and Josh Jackson. But I did a little bit of digging. I looked into the um, over the past 10 years, 12 rookies played at least 1000 minutes in the rookie season and finished with a value of a replacement player of negative one or worse. Josh Jackson's was negative 1.1 1. 1, uh last year obviously there's no per- perfect uh, advanced metric but i just wanted to see what i would find in terms of what are the careers of the other guys who had as poor a start um at least by the advanced metrics to their careers and there are some really big positives in terms of other young players around the league who look really good right now uh first of all you've got De'Aaron fox who's absolutely killing it in sacramento you've got a guy like sabonis in indiana and uh brandon ingram and zach Levine as well those are those are Just about all of the good options. Then you get to the guys like Rashad Vaughn, Isaiah Whitehead, Emmanuel Moutier, Norris Cole, Austin Rivers, and a couple of other guys, and you start to realize that, okay, we maybe need to temper our expectations with Josh Jackson a little bit. He is very much fighting an uphill battle. And I will admit that you know in in examples like last night's game, he's not being put in a situation in which he can succeed. He absolutely should not be creating for himself on offense uh, to the extent that we can avoid that. But at the same time, it's, it's been a little bit rough watching Josh this year, and I can't lie about that.
1: Kellen, something Yusuf uh, from Suns Film was talking to us about is part of the problem is with Igor, and he thinks that Igor needs to run more plays for Josh Jackson. When you have a guy like Josh Jackson, his thought is he needs the ball in his hands a little bit to be successful. Um, do you agree with that, or do you think that Josh Jackson's struggles are entirely on him?
3: I actually, uh, I actually completely disagree. I think that he needs to be taken almost out of the offense entirely and he just needs to be the glue guy in the corner. And yes, he's not a good shooter. So that kind of contradicts, but I think what you're going to just keep getting is him running into the wall over and over and over and over and over again, which is what he did last night when he shot five of 21 from the field. And I think he's going to keep doing. Um, I'm going to give you a radio tease for what I'm about to say. I'm going to tell you why Josh Jackson reminds me of Dragon Bender. Coming up next. (laughs) With Dragon, it was very, very simple. Be aggressive. Stay aggressive. Look to shoot. Play with that type of mindset. With Josh, it's play with that same level of energy, but learn how to contain it. And until he learns how to contain it and avoid these super erratic and all over the place just mess of plays god there was in the fourth quarter last night terrence ross just went nuts and so josh jackson came out of the timeout and he was like that's it he's not scoring on me anymore that's it so terrence ross comes around a down screen on the t- at the top of the key and catches the ball and josh jackson nearly ran to the half court line he was closing him out so fast and Terrence ross just dribbled past him handed it off to mo bomba and mo bomba dunked it and that's the type of play where you say yes he's playing all out he's playing with the energy but he can't corral it and he can't control himself in these moments and nearly he is over 100 games into his NBA career now he's got to be past that for the type of player he was going to be out of the draft and and for now the same thing with Dragan I'm just going to be with my hands back and just say like until you learn how to really corral this and you can prove over a stretch of game you can avoid these these over the top negative plays. I don't really know how you can look at him in a positive light as a player. That's really encouraging, isn't it?
1: <laughs> no, it's true. He's been by all metrics one of the worst players in the NBA so far. I think it's interesting every time he's on the court as soon as there's a play stoppage, you see Igor running up to Josh Jackson and having a conversation with him right away. I think he might drive him nuts. <laughs> it's a real challenge for a coach. So, um, Tim, what do you feel about Josh Jackson?
4: Well, I'm really glad that you pointed that out because then I'm not crazy for being the only one that's noticed that with Igor talking to Josh. Um, I mean, to Kellen's point earlier, I'd have to disagree a little bit. Josh Jackson's three of 15 from the corner three. So I don't necessarily want him posting up in the corner and taking a bunch of corner threes. But, uh, to your guys' point, I mean, Josh Jackson has a 20% turnover Rate which puts him in the zero percentile, that's uh, according to Cleaning the Glass. A, a usage rate of 24.4%, which puts him in the 86 percentile, uh, again, according to Cleaning the Glass. And y- you have to at some point corral him, take the ball out of his hands. I mean, Josh Jackson is really good when he's cutting, he does things that are really great. We can talk about how uh, inefficient he was in that game the other night. But you know he did have a near triple double, and there are certain things that he does really well. But there are other things that he does not, and I'm not sure that having the ball in his hand is necessarily how the Suns uh, should be conducting their offense. But then again, I don't really know what else Igor can do. But I guess to your uh, to your initial questions, I mean, Josh Jackson has been disappointing, and I don't think that there's anyone that can disagree. And I remember when when Suns fans were all up in arms because they didn't want the Suns to trade Josh Jackson for Kyrie Irving. And that's how high his value was at that time. And and look where we are a season and a half later.
1: Tim, at what point do you think the Suns need to maybe give up on Josh Jackson a little bit and, and stop playing him so much? Well,
4: you can't give up on him. I mean, so, so the issue with Josh Jackson is it becomes an opportunity cost. So if you want to trade him for anything of value, that means that you have to get his trade value up. Or if you want to keep him. Because you think that he can become a good player, you have to play him so that he can get some reps. I mean, you can't exactly send him down to the G League. That's just not going to work. So, you know, they're they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, if you want to trade him, you got to play him. If you want him to get better, you got to play him. So they're kind of stuck. And also, I mean, we're talking about a, a team that is uh, a farther behind from uh the 14th seed uh then the 14th seed is from the 1st you know this is a a team that is tanking again whether or not they want to so you might as well give Josh Jackson the reps i mean there's nothing to lose
1: it's just really unfortunate that the worst bench in the nba is not made any better by the fourth pick in the previous draft <laughs> that's that's kind of the conversation about Josh Jackson at this point
4: but i i mean i don't want to say i called it but i remember having this argument when the Suns were talking about drafting Josh Jackson, is that if you looked at his shot, it needed to be reworked completely. And we've seen that Evan Sidery pointed it out on Twitter the other day. His shot is a lot more fluid. Um, if you watch him in, in pregame warmups, he's shooting one handed from, uh, from the three point line. And and that's all part of, of improving your shot. But this is something that we talked about. We knew was going to be an issue. And and now we're just seeing it unfold. (sighs) Ah, (laughs)
1: it's a hard it's a hard one for Josh Jackson it's never a a fun conversation um there's some other new additions to the team that joined this offseason Trevor Reza Rashawn Holmes Ryan Anderson those are the guys that played minutes we'll just skip Ryan Anderson entirely he's not playing anymore and he's been a terrible disappointment and we're gonna have to buy him out at some point maybe even before the end of this season um But Trevor Ariza, I actually feel like Trevor Ariza has been a little unfairly maligned by Suns fans so far. A little bit up and down. uh, His offense is not always there. Uh, I've seen the effort on defense wane at times, but I think overall he's been a positive player. Now, Sam, what do you think about Trevor Ariza? With
2: all due respect, is there much point in talking about Trevor Ariza just because... He's so (laughs) obviously not going to be with this team next year, and we're talking about maybe including him in a false trade on December 15th. So I agree with you. I I think it's a little bit underrated, but still, (laughs) as Tim was just saying, we're tanking whether we like it or not, and Trevor Reza is not part of these long-term plans.
1: Tim, do you feel the same way? I think that
4: with Trevor Reza, there's two things at play here, and and one is he is simply being asked to do more than – he's used to being asked to do and you know trevor reza is a great glue guy and that's something that's come up on the podcast a while when we've been talking about michael bridges and so but we're asking him to be much more than that Um, but i also think there's an element in his contract size that's just working uh, against him for example if the suns had given him five million dollars this year as opposed to 15 i think that suns fans would just have a completely different take on his value on the court
1: that's a that's a really interesting point and it's a guy there's guys like this Mikael Bridges, Trevor Reza, Rashawn Holmes, Ryan Anderson, including those guys. Picturing them with a real point guard kinda of changes how you feel about them. Because a guy like Trevor Reza, we're we're he's running pick and rolls. He's running it down on the fast break. This is not what he's used to doing. It's not what he did in Houston. He needs a point guard. It's just interesting to think about him from that perspective. So Kellen, how do you feel about Trevor Reza so far?
3: Uh he's been slightly disappointing. Three games into the year, it was very clear that him and Randy Anderson were looking at each other and they didn't realize what they got themselves into. Uh, his shooting has been a little bit worse than expected, but he's picked it up. I think he's been fine some games. I think he's been bad in some other ones. It's the same point on McElroy. Like from a guy on a 4-18 team. So, yeah, I'll keep it short on him. That's really it.
1: So let's end this conversation on a little bit of a positive note, and that is Rashawn Holmes. <laughs> Rashawn Holmes has been... Really great addition to this team. An addition that really only cost us cash uh, to get him. So uh, he's been really active defensively, really active on the boards, and uh, a fun player to watch offensively in that he's got one move, and that's a dunk. Actually, we've seen a few floaters from him in the last few games, which has been interesting. Um, Kellen. Holmes, you're, we're all. I'm. Mean, I'm guessing that we're all on the train of we need to re-sign Rashawn Holmes as a backup for DeAndre Ayton. He's a guy that sort of does everything that DeAndre Ayton doesn't. He's physical. He 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 really gets on it um, as far as rim protection. Um, but has he exceeded your expectations so far, Kellen?
3: Yeah, he was actually a guy. He was one of my favorite guys around the league in in the past couple of years. That was sort of uh, in that. Stuck in that tenth to fifteenth spot on a roster on good teams where you you didn't really see much of them because of where the team status was. I was interested to see him when he moved on to another team, and sure enough, it was the Suns. Uh, but with that being said, I, I didn't really expect him to be this much of a of a game changer night in and night out because that's what he's been. Uh, he's just been a huge boost to this team whenever he plays, and and I think what I see from him is just confidence. I, I think that he he plays with a confidence and not only the confidence, but just having the ability to not really make as many mistakes as some of the other younger players on this team will make even when they are confident. And that's because of also what he's doing. Uh, He's just doing rim runs. He's just doing rim protection. He's doing rebounding, block shots, hustle plays. So it's hard for him to, and it's hard for others to really screw up those plays. And it's a really basic role that he's thriving in. And I think it just makes things a whole lot simpler for everyone else on the team as well, because he's playing... Uh, so Right now, DeAndre Aiden's not a guy that you look to individually post up more than three, four, five times a night, and he's mostly just been the diver on pick and rolls, and that's exactly what Rashawn Holmes does on offense as well, so it simplifies things for the other guys coming in as well, so beyond him playing well and beyond the need to bring him back next year, I think it just helps everyone else out because he plays a similar style uh, to Aiden in terms of what his role is.
2: Uh, he's playing phenomenally, especially when it comes to rim protection. Uh, Tim threw out a stat earlier in this episode where he was talking about DeAndre Ayton's rim protection, and I think you said he allowed opponents to shoot, was it 67% inside of five or six feet? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so I mean, if you look at Holmes, he's uh allowing opponents to shoot 46.4% inside of six feet. That ranks second just behind Bam Adebayo among all uh NBA centers, so he's been phenomenal in that respect. I hope it doesn't take too much to re-sign him, but I don't know, given how much some big men signed for this offseason, if you look at guys like Brooke Lopez, Julius Randle, even Alex Len, who maybe went a couple months without offers, um, I'd like to think Holmes wouldn't exactly break the bank for the Suns, but he is a guy who should be appreciated for his defensive uh, intensity.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, everyone has cap space in this coming year, so guys might get paid a little more than they're worth. Uh, Tim, do you have any thoughts on Rashawn Holmes and how he's been for the team so far? Well,
4: one thing is, if James Jones, if you are listening to this podcast, please... Resign Rashawn. Of course, he listens. I I mean, he is the perfect backup big, and I think that everyone that had seen him play in Philly knew exactly what the Suns were getting. They were all really excited. But my my thing with Rashawn Holmes, I just think if you had Rashawn Holmes' mentality and veracity on the court, but with DeAndre Ayton's size and soft touch, it would just make the perfect center. But that being said, I mean, the Suns right now are uh, getting solid play out of the center spot. For the entire game. And that's something that we haven't seen in years past. And a large part of that is because of Rashawn Holmes as well as DeAndre Aiden.
1: All right. Well, that's been, unfortunately, with the the start that the Suns have had so far, this isn't an overly positive podcast as far as our first quarterly report. But remember, we all knew that the beginning of the season, the first quarter of the season, is very difficult, the the most difficult schedule uh, in the NBA so far, which tends to happen when you're the worst team in the NBA, of course. But uh, we kind of knew that this first quarter of the season will be rough. We're hoping the next quarterly report after the next about 20-ish games is a little more positive, but we'll see at that point. Um, But thank you guys so much for joining Sam and I. This has been a really fun conversation. Uh, Kellen, uh, make sure to listen, of course, to the Empire of the Suns podcast and read everything he writes at ArizonaSports.com. Kellen, do you have anything specific that you'd like to plug?
3: Uh, No, that's pretty much everything, man. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of
1: fun. Of course, and Tim, Suns Solar Panel. Make sure to follow, of course, these guys on Twitter as well. Both really great uh, Twitter follows. Solar Panel is another fantastic podcast. Tim, do you have anything that you would like? As to far play? as
4: plugging, no. I think you already did that well enough for me, but I just want to say, Kellen, it was nice to podcast with you again. I think this is the second or third time. And Sam and Mike, thank you so much for having me on. And um, I'm just really appreciative, uh, again, to not have to be the one editing this podcast, but it really is an honor <laughs> to be on. So thank you.
1: All right, well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure to check us out next week. And, uh, yeah, well, hopefully another great week of Suns victories, right, guys?
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Only victories for us. The the small victories.